afternoon. You are on the panel on RNZ National. Simon Pound, Cass Carter with me. And the government has done a policy refocus announced at 3pm this afternoon. So Prime Minister Chris Hipkins has confirmed the TVNZ-RNZ merger will be scrapped and the income insurance scheme and hate speech legislation at least delayed. Biofuels mandate to be stopped and the government to consider changes to the Three Waters programme soon. So there'll be more on that this year. And minimum wage to increase by rate of inflation from the 1st of April. These changes were announced by the Prime Minister just a short time ago. These are the first and the most significant set of decisions that we are taking to refocus the government's agenda. They'll allow us to shift our focus, our time, our energy and our resources to the most pressing issues that are facing New Zealanders at the moment. They won't be the last policy changes that we'll be making, but they are some of the most substantive. So we'll talk about the media merger very shortly in a few minutes, but let's run a political ruler over this announcement first with uh, Associate Professor Grant Duncan, lecturer in politics at Massey University. Dr. Grant, Dr. Duncan, kia ora. Kia ora, Wallace. So, look, the hate speech legislation mm. withdrawn from Parliament, the matter to be referred to the Law Commission for guidance. I mean, ever since that March 15 terror attack, it's always been quite the headache for the government, hasn't it? Oh, definitely. It's a, it's a fine balancing act between dealing with uh, incitement to disharmony on one hand and on the other hand, the freedom of speech. And I think uh, it's really a matter where I think there's been a lot of uh, uncertainty and uh, disillusionment in the public. And so it's the right thing to do, I think, to ask the Law Commission to have a closer look at this because I think the legal team in there would have a pretty good understanding of how we can reword that law to make it uh, more satisfactory for New Zealanders and make it achieve that balance better. I mean, and it's become quite complex, hasn't it, as long as well as contentious, but needless to say, uh, some communities, including the Muslim community, will perhaps not be uh, happy about this. Well, no, they won't be happy about it, but then also we do need to get the wording right because I think if you look carefully at the way that the Human Rights Act is worded around these clauses at the moment, it's not very clear and it does need a general tidy up, I think. Okay, we'll go to the panel as well, but looking at this and also some of the other announcements, will this draw a line under the administration of Jacinda Ardern? Who are you asking me, uh, Wallace? Yes. Who are you asking me? Um, yeah. Well, um, yeah, no, I do think it will. And the, the question really is how will people interpret this? Will they interpret it as Labour really keeping up the momentum and the political initiative going ahead to the election here? Or will people see it as a, as a flip-flop, as just creating more uncertainty? Uh, that's very much in the eye of the beholder. Uh, but certainly um, I don't think we should see it necessarily as a reflection on the previous Prime Minister, but it's one of those things where it's a problem of political success. And many commentators predicted this at the last election, that Labour having the majority in the House would overplay that hand and move ahead too quickly with things where they didn't really have the public and the political mm-hmm. consensus. And that's what we, that's the problem that we're seeing them trying to clean up now. 
Okay. Now, by the way, um, Prime Minister Chris Hipkins will be with uh, Lisa Owen on Checkpoint just after five to discuss this further. So uh, tune into that. Let's go over to Cass. How did you view this uh, raft of announcement, Cass? Hey, uh, hi, Grant. Um, okay. I um I'm not not very surprised. I think there was a predicted what he what he actually did. But Grant, I was sort of interested from you. Um, what was the political risk of these changes? Given that there's a lot of lot of money being spent on on a number of these um, initiatives, and also to me, these were the, sort of the easy hits. And I wonder what you think comes next. You know, there's some controversial stuff still. There, three waters co governance argument. Um, I'm just wondering what what your predictions are for the next announcement. Mm. Well, yeah, with Three Waters, clearly there's a new minister. Uh, the co-governance aspects of the Three Waters reforms, although they were already in an act of parliament, haven't been taken off the table by the Prime Minister today, so they could presumably be changed. But uh, that Three Waters reform was one which potentially was going to help the uh, Labour Party lose the next election, so they really had to do something about it. But on the other hand... Uh, we still have this genuine need for significant infrastructural investment and we have to find some way to help particularly the smaller councils to deal with uh, those infrastructural problems. And, you know, that problem doesn't go away and, and the need to pay for those things and invest in them doesn't go away. Uh, so there's going to obviously be some a lot more work to do here and I think we'll be seeing quite a number of uh, further changes whether or not co-governance survives this uh, round of changes, I don't know. All right, Simon. Yeah, isn't it a shame that these things became kind of, um, you know, anti-government memes almost, where you had things mm. like the oh. anti-Three Waters protest organisers on this station saying they hadn't even read the act, but they were against it anyway. You know, like <laughs> a lot of the stuff we're losing, really good intention because of... Um, yeah, like a, 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 a swell amongst a group of the populace against it without even knowing the facts in many of these instances. Mm. And it's a terrible shame. Um, so it makes good politics to park it, but, you know, okay. it's, it's good for a lot of people uh, to get Grant, there. before we go, a quick comment on the social insurance scheme and always a bit contentious. Some saw, saw it as a bit of a high-tier unemployment benefit. Others thought, well, actually, this is a, a pretty pragmatic uh, step if you've you know lost your career and you have a bit of a backstop. Oh, yeah, I mean, I was kind of um, both for and against it myself, really, to be honest. I wasn't completely behind it. I, one of the things that I liked about it was that it was building on the ACC model, which I've always felt very favourably towards. But on the other hand, it wasn't fully bringing in um, the health side of things uh, to balance out that uh, inequity between people who've been disabled by accidents as compared with people who've been disabled by uh, congenital or chronic diseases. Uh, so it does bring some health conditions in. But yeah, overall, I think, once again, it's a pragmatic decision here. I don't necessarily think that uh, we shouldn't go ahead with such a scheme in future, but clearly it's just not the right time to be building in new taxes. Okay, the political angle on this raft of announcements, Dr. Duncan Kiora. Uh, it is uh, 15 past four. You're on the panel. And again, uh, Minister, Prime Minister Chris Hipkins will be on uh, checkpoint uh, with Lisa Owens just after five. Uh, well, the TV and ZRNZ merger will be scrapped. This is what the Prime Minister had to say about the decision. There's a clear need for further support for public media but it needs to be at a lower cost and without the need for significant structural change. 
Radio New Zealand will be provided with additional funding to secure its financial stability and to strengthen its role in public media. New Zealand On Air will also receive additional funding uh, and that will be accessible across a range of different platforms. So the merger was tabled in February of 2020 by former Broadcasting Minister Chris Farfall. With us is Dr Peter Thompson, Associate Professor of Media Studies at Te Herangawaka, Victoria University. Uh, Peter, kia ora. Kia ora, Wallace. No merger there, Peter. There was quite a bit of pushback in the last few months, wasn't there? Any surprise here or not really? Well, it's not a huge amount of surprise, although I think the, the decision has been taken relatively late in the day. Uh, for me, it, it's a disappointment because I thought that the proposal, despite its flaws, uh, was salvageable, and I think it provided a framework uh, for developing the, a multi-platform future for public media. Uh, but clearly that's now off the agenda. Uh, more than $1 million spent preparing for this merger. Uh, in the current climate, a uh, $1 million that could go a long way. A bit of a waste of money? Oh, well, if you looked across the entirety of government and looked at all the spending on all the consultants in other portfolios, I think you'd find more than a million dollars. There's been a ridiculous amount of forensic attention paid to the cost of consultants on this particular area of policy. And I think other areas of policy are probably even more uh, culpable in terms of wasting money. So I wouldn't single out public media as being particularly serious or egregious. Right, we'll, we'll cross our panel shortly. I just want to ask about the, uh, I mean, there has been, uh, well, I mean, there's been additional funding, hasn't there, for both RNZ and NZ on air. Does this allay any fears you have about uh, an erosion of public media? Well, it depends how much and it depends what they do with it. Uh, the Prime Minister suggested that a substantial amount of the, uh, of the current allocation of $109 million extra a year would be reabsorbed. And uh, I think that's a terrible shame because we still lag way behind most other countries when it comes to investment in public media. But I think, I think it depends really on, on what they do with the funding that is allocated to RNZ and New Zealand on air. I don't agree with the Prime Minister that we don't need structural change and that this, this policy was too expensive. I actually think we need to invest more and we do need structural change. But one possibility here would be to, to create what I would call a public service publisher model where radio, New Zealand Air would still uh, operate a contestable fund, but some of that content that's funded was designated for distribution on RNZ. And that would mean that you get out of the current problem where you, you always hit commercial gatekeepers that don't want you know, public service content that doesn't maximise ratings. Oh, that's an interesting so solution. I think, I think a, public, something. a public service publisher model here. A um, bit of a solution here from Peter Tonson. All right, Cass. Um, uh, a good thing or, um, or or not so, the merger scrapped? Well, I was still probably like a number of people who were wondering what was the problem that was trying to be solved. So thank you, Peter, because that was a really insight into looking at the future. And I think you possibly answered my question because what I did wonder is, is there still any chance to to share between TVNZ and RNZ in terms of a digital platform? Because that's what seems to me to be the crossover is radio and television are quite different in so many ways in terms of product and also the culture of the two organisations. But um, but they've also, but they've got digital platforms which have got huge potential, and I and and I just wondered if that, if if maybe some of that money could go towards that. 
I mean, mm-hmm. I, I'd, I'd, I'd certainly see opportunities uh, for developing new services towards underserved audiences, and the Prime Minister did discuss that. I think, I think for me, the question, though, is, is what sort of programming is it going to fund? Because at the moment, there's an awful lot of creative local content producers who never get a shake of the dice because they can't find distribut- you know, distributors. Uh, and that's a key problem. So if, if you vertically mm. integrate, and that, by that I mean you connect the funding body and the content producer to a distribution platform, you, you, you create a, a virtuous circle where, where they don't need to worry too much about whether every single program will rate. Uh, and that would open the door to a much wider range of content that we currently see. All right, Simon. Yeah, it's a <laughs> it's such a pickle, isn't it? Because this kind of idea of making a a super platform, if you look at the, you know the the most recent audience data I saw for people under about thirty five, you know TVNZ isn't in the top three platforms that people are consuming their media content through, and so this kind of model of have beefing up NZ on air to allow them to make more things that can go onto lots of platforms seems to make a bit of sense and it seems to be a very difficult moment to be trying to create a super platform and I had always wondered about the very different cultures of these two particular organisations. So starting afresh and going what's the right kind of platform to be sharing things that are public service makes more sense than trying to smush TVNZ and RNZ together to me. Yeah Peter? I'd I'd have some sympathy for that argument. I was always worried that the culture between TVNZ, which is commercial, and RNZ, which is public service, uh, wouldn't wouldn't easily mix. But I think the problem here is that we we, we can't just disseminate the content across the Internet as a whole. There's certainly room for dissemination of local content on on some different platforms by different providers. But we also need a, a digital home, a digital portal, where you know you can find that content. Content. And that was one of the things that I think an awful lot of people missed with the ANZPM bill, that, that it was intended to actually create a platform that would go looking for it's, audiences, it's, uh, where Peter, the Peter, audiences Peter. are. Here's an idea of sponsors, uh, some text says um, uh, this. So, look, w- resurrecting an old idea, Peter, there was an idea that had been around for five years. It was starting to get ahead of steam, albeit from a low base, and that was something called TVNZ7. It was 16 million bucks a year. There was a very strong News at 8 package. There was a show uh, in a pub with politics. I knew the person who ran it. I mean, I'm wondering, is that a model with an online add-on component that one can revisit? I, I certainly would. I was a huge fan of TVNZ7. Um, I, 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 and if you go and go back and look at the range of content that TVNZ carried, it, its complexion was completely different from anything you would see on any of the commercial channels. Now, obviously, broadcasting is slowly declining as a, as a platform, and we need to go and find the, the audiences on, on the platforms where they're, they're now seeking content. But having a platform that is public service in operation, not-for-profit, means that it can host content and pr- broadcast, if there still is a television service, content that, that is not subject to the constraints of commercial media. Right. And that is incredibly important. Very now, good. If all they do is throw a bit more money at RNZ, and news all on there, well, we'll get some benefit out of that, but it won't solve the structural problem, and that kind of model might. 
We'll wait to see what happens, eh? Dr. Peter Thompson there uh, uh, from Media Studies at Vic. It's 23 past four. Your thoughts on that? Uh, does the RNZ merge, uh, TVNZ scrap mean anything to you or not? Uh, but to this, this is another story that broke this afternoon. Fascinating. New Zealand authorities have intercepted more than, get this, three tonnes of cocaine. You heard that right, three tonnes. It's a lot of coke from a vessel in the Pacific Ocean. The shipment recently arrived in Aotearoa after a six-day journey aboard a Royal New Zealand Navy vessel. It's the biggest ever seizure of drugs by New Zealand authorities. The second largest, 700 kilograms. At a press conference, Police Commissioner Andrew Costa said the 81 bales with a street value of half a billion dollars is thought to have been destined for Aussie. We believe there was enough cocaine to service the Australian market for about one year. And this would be more than New Zealand would use in 30 years. Okay, so 30 years of coke busted with us as Executive Director of the New Zealand Drug Foundation, Sarah Helm. Kia ora, Sarah. Hi, kia ora. Just the scale. Just the scale is astonishing, isn't it? It is a little overwhelming, isn't it? I mean, I think it is really important to bear in mind the police believe it was destined for Australia um, and therefore, you know, probably wasn't on its way here, actually. Um, And we should always treat the news about drug seizures slightly cautiously um, because it doesn't necessarily represent what people are actually using in the community. However, in this case, and I don't mean to say that this represents a huge problem, but we have seen an increase in cocaine use in New Zealand in the last few months, both through our wastewater testing that the you know ESR run, um, but also through our drug checking clinics, we're seeing a bit more come through and a bit of anecdotal report as well. Uh, so it's good to you know uh, be cautious in all the things. So both not presume that means long term change, but also uh, other countries have seen rapid changes in their drug supply, so we need to be prepared. All right. So there's been a bit of an increase in. Uh cocaine um, through wastewater testing cares. Yeah. I was absolutely fascinated with um, how their drugs are transported. I didn't know that they just dumped them in the sea and they just blobbed around yeah. for a while and somebody came and picked them up. It's not something I'm very specialist in, so that was interesting. But um, I'm not sure what to think about this because it was destined for Australia, not us, and I'm kind of interested in the um, the figures that it said um, it, was, it would supply Australia for one year and New Zealand for 30 years because I thought, yeah, I'm trying to do the maths on that, and I know there's a lot more Australians, but it feels like they've got a bigger issue than us. So um, Sarah, I'm interested that you say there's been an increase in cocaine use um, recently because I have been following the ESR um, wastewater um, testing with interest, actually, and I understood that mostly the cocaine was used in Auckland in the weekends, and it wasn't our big, biggest issue that it was more methamphetamine that we should be worrying about. Yeah, absolutely. It's just very recently that this has happened. So that came out a couple of days ago, I believe. Um, And so we've just had a a bit of a blip over the last few months. Uh, Of course, we always hope it's a blip. Only, uh, you know, not to judge anyone who's used cocaine, but it is up the more harmful end of the spectrum. Uh, Whereas MDMA, for example, which might be a similar community using uh, both substances, is at the lower end of harm. So you're much more likely to experience addiction. Uh, It wears off very quickly, so people tend to redose and redose, and you probably shouldn't be because it can both A, lead to the addiction, but also put excessive amounts of pressure on your heart, etc.
Well, gosh, interesting. Yeah. Simon? Yeah, it does seem like there's a lot of headroom there in the one year in Australia and 30 years here. Mm. They're about yeah. a five times per capita. And, you know, for a country that loves to be at the lead of things per capita, we're really lagging there. But yeah, it's, it's absolutely wild. And I, I mean, I know for a long time, New Zealand's been a place that the price of drugs is so high here compared to everywhere else in the world that cartels kind of send stuff and hope it gets through and don't care if it doesn't. And Australia is you know, not as um, expensive as mm. New Zealand, but a little bit like that too. But I mean, these are huge numbers, like half a billion dollars. Yeah, it's um, unreal. A, a shipment seems to be a, a highly concentrated risk. Yeah, Simon. I'm sorry, Sarah. The price point on cocaine, say, for example, compared to MDMA on the street at the moment is about twice, about twice the price. Mm. So um, uh, it must be very um, profitable as well. Uh, but we are concerned that drug supply can change rapidly. We've seen overseas, say, Canada, they've had it, that happen a couple of times. A lot of people died. And um, so we need to get better prepared for that and to have, you know, the regulatory tools we need as well as an investment in harm reduction and addiction treatment and, and so forth. Very good to have you on the program, Sarah. Thank you. That's Sarah Helm there from the New Zealand Drug Foundation. It's 29 past four. Just coming back briefly to uh, some of your fear, but got to come back to this because we've had so much response on this. And that was when... Uh, Simon Pounds said that the hol- the school holiday system is just not fit for purpose. Uh, how on earth uh, can school holidays be just so long? And quite a <laughs> got quite a response. Um, summer holidays are indeed tricky for parents, but I was very pleased when we came to New Zealand after being in the US. One year we had a twelve week summer school holiday. It was a nightmare. Uh, another one says, uh, school holidays. The between-term holidays do not need to be two weeks. One week is enough of a break for kids. Another person, though, says, it sounds to me, despite protestations, there is an element of child-minding from the panel member, Simon Pound, regarding the purpose of schools. Remember, Simon Pound, the teachers are knackered by the end of a school year. Imagine a job... Pound, where as, for example, a secondary school teacher is managing a different group of about 30 people every hour, all of whom are entitled to the teacher's one-to-one help. That teacher is expected, Simon, to be prepared, engaged and positive for each of those groups. Then have meetings, lunchtimes or after school, marking and prep, and then try to have a private life with their own kids. So that person is just... Ha- just, been handed your whatever on the plate. Well, I think that, you know, people who are educators are very sensitive about schools being treated like childcare, which is why I said we know that educators aren't meant to be like <laughs> this. But the system, and also, you know, like for the context there, like teachers have been one of the most, uh, you, you know, they've had some of the worst effects from the COVID epidemic. Um, people who are teaching are much more likely to have caught COVID multiple times and have worse kind of health outcomes. You know, it's, it's a really difficult spot they're in. And, you know, a lot of them are the same parents with the same issues around looking after their kids through the long periods too. You were saying so, they don't deserve it. Don't, <laughs> yes, yes, I was saying, saying they saying. don't deserve it. No, they saying, don't deserve saying, their with, Without it just being teachers having to do more hours, what other things that 
need to change in the system to mean that the holidays are something more manageable for double family working parents. And a lot of double working family parents would think that. And at the same time, like I do think, teachers are doing a great job okay. and don't need more hours. Two, uh, <laughs> two one zero one. your thoughts on that uh, most welcome. It is 4.31, the panel.